You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Sylvester Sloan pays cash to Tango in Copland. <laughs> Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One has two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam uh, Thomas, (laughs) and I am the law. And I am Thomas Mariani, and Adam, I gave you the chance to do an intro. I gave you the chance, and you blew it! You blew it. I love that part so much. <laughs> so We're going to talk about <laughs> maybe the best in your line ever. I love that yep. line so much. Uh, but anyway, um, welcome uh, to this edition of Double Edge, Double Bill, where we're not talking about De Niro exclusively. Um, he pops up in one of our movies tonight, but our main topic is Mr. Sylvester Stallone in honor of Rambo Last Blood is coming out this week that we're uh, releasing this, which um, are you excited at all, Adam? No. I mean, I, <laughs> not really. I mean, I'll watch it when it comes out to rent or whatever, but no, nah, not really. I'm kind of fascinated because nothing else, just before we get to our main films, um, I'd only seen First Blood and the 2008 Rambo uh, before this past week. Yeah. I watched two and three Yeah, recently. Uh, just to say, First Blood, one of my favorite Stallone mm-hmm. movies of all time. Amazing movie. Yeah. Um, two is fun, even though it's a complete betrayal of First Blood. Like, on every level. Oh, it's yeah. a complete betrayal. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's kind of fun, especially it has one of my favorite villain character actors of Charles Napier. It's so good. As, like, the, the asshole, like, military guy that gets Rambo into this whole prisoner of war thing. Yeah. Pretty fun. Rambo 3 is terrible. Uh, we almost covered it for the show, and I'm glad we didn't. There, there's a lot wrong with that. <laughs> I think particularly Rambo fighting for... The Middle East during the Soviet Union sort of crisis that was going on in Afghanistan. And then later saying, like, oh, hey, why don't you come stay with us, Rambo? And he's like, um, how about next time? It's like, Rambo, you don't want to come back next time. <laughs> you really don't yeah, want to come really back next time. You don't want to do that. No, I agree. Rambo 3 is garbage. Yeah. And then Rambo 2008 I really enjoy um, as basically the goriest non-horror movie I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it's ridiculous. They, could they have made the main bad guy any more of just, like, the most evil person in the world? Oh, no, it's, it's a weird thing where they keep the sort of grounded level of First Blood in terms of the tone they're going for, but they have just as ridiculous villains as, like, the sequels do. I mean, and this guy, that guy's a pedophile. Yep. They murder children in that movie quite graphically. Right, and they literally have, like, that scene where all of the henchmen are forcing innocent civilians to, like, run across water full of grenades. Like, a little water mud can. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It gets pretty ridiculous, but at the same time, it's pretty fun. I love, I heard Stallone say his aesthetic with directing that movie, because he didn't want to direct it. Mm -hmm. He said, when I ended up getting the, sort of, put in this position, I thought, what if Rambo directed the movie, like, the actual character? And that makes so much sense when you watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, I never heard that before, but that totally makes sense. That makes so much sense. It's fun for what it is, uh, even though there's a lot of issues with it on sort of like a geopolitical level. <laughs> a lot of issues. I'm sorry, I laughed when they threw the kid into the fire. There's there's a lot to kind of laugh at. Um, but, you know, if nothing else, that kind of got me curious about like what this necessarily do and how much like another 10 year gap has will, will change Rambo in this way. I'm kind of curious, even though I don't have high expectations by any means. Right. Um, But anyway, we're talking about Stallone. Uh, We might as well also talk about um, our own personal experience with Stallone here. When did you first see Stallone? Because at the end of our last episode, you talked about how much you really loved him as a kid. Do you remember the first time you saw him in something? I want to say the first time I remember seeing him in something and then tracing things back was probably Cobra. Oh, a fun one. A fun, bad movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a really bad movie. Trivia, what he originally wanted Beverly Hills Cop to be yes. when he was originally put in before Eddie Murphy took over. Which, um, imagine Eddie Murphy in Cobra. Oh my god. 
<laughs> no, because I just remember the cover of it where he had the sunglasses and the, the gun with the laser sight and everything. I thought, oh my God, who's this guy? And I watched it. I thought he was the coolest dude ever. And then I think saw like one of the Rocky sequels next and then went back and watched all those and kind of just everything that came out of his that I kind of, I think I saw most of them in the theater. And one of our features that we're talking about tonight, I mean, I, as a kid, I thought it was the coolest movie ever. I was a huge Copland kid. <laughs> <laughs> a small child just yeah. loving the fucking just loving Copland. <laughs> so many character actors I love. <laughs> what about you? Well, I wasn't as big a Stallone kid. Um, my dad was a big exposure to me in terms of a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, which we may be talking about Arnold later in the year. There might be a good point for it. Put a pin in that. Stallone's movies tend to skew less toward kids and a bit more toward adults, especially like Rocky and Rambo. Yeah. Um, but the one that he, I do remember very vividly that he showed me um, was Cliffhanger. Yeah, I loved Cliffhanger as a kid, too. Not a great movie, except, admittingly, the opening of that movie is phenomenal. The whole opening, like, cliff climbing sequence where that one lady dies great opening to that movie the rest of it's fine it's got john lithgow's villain it's it's a very entertaining cable watch for what it, it is yeah i'd argue uh god i can't think of his damn name now uh yondu what's his name michael rooker yeah i'd argue that's one of michael rooker's uh best early performances too for sure especially during that opening where mm-hmm. his girlfriend's the one that dies <laughs> hey drop it no man you're the one that <laughs> dropped it <laughs> and there's like the snowboarding stoner kids there as oh, well. Oh God! <laughs> but it's it's fun for what it is. And I didn't really come to the Rocky or Rambo movies until around high school, like later in high school, even. Just because I remember it was not too long after Balboa came out, and I was like, you know, I haven't seen any of these movies, so I might as well. Unlike sort of a, a Schwarzenegger, Stallone has a bit more of like a relatability to him, especially in the '80s and '90s. Even when he did a really shitty movie. It at least felt he was earnestly trying, no matter how bad it was necessarily. Yeah, I agree. He was pretty much always fully committed to everything he did. I mean, he really didn't give a shit about the roles he took. I never really got a paycheck role vibe off of any of his early stuff. No, it wasn't until I would say around the new millennium you started getting that when you get like Get Carter remake or oh, uh, I See <laughs> You or whatever the hell. Or Driven, shit like that. A bit more paychecky um or even the expendables movies which have been definitely that it's a shame he's kind of divulged into that we'll probably talk about that a bit more as we go along but uh those aren't the main movies we're talking about tonight tonight we are talking about um our good pick which for those of you who might be new at the end of our last episode we did a uh, random picking of two movies um i had two bad movies and adam picked number between one and ten and vice versa for me and his good picks and what we ended up getting was copland for adam's good pick uh, from 1997, and for my bad pick, though I'd say almost so bad it's good pick, uh, Tango and Cash from 1989. So well, we're getting an interesting different points of his career, for sure, with those two. Yeah, we're getting the more dramatic, and then definitely the just sleazy action star. Yes, we're, we're definitely going to divulge into both of those, uh, but let's go ahead and first do Copland. In the city of New York, a crime is committed every eight seconds. But just across the river lies a quiet town where New York's finest return home. It's a place where the sheriff wears the badge, but the cops own the town. My jurisdiction ends at the George Washington Bridge. But half the men I watch live beyond that bridge where no one's watching. I'm watching. Hands on the car! Thank you, the sheriff of Copland. Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel, and Robert De Niro. Copland. So, uh, Copland came out um, on August 15th, 1997. It is directed and written by James Mangold. Only his second film, interestingly enough, which, um, to get this cast and everything, it's pretty impressive. It's insane. For your second time out. And, of course, he would later go on to do stuff like the 310 to Yuma remake, or Identity, or The Wolverine and Logan. Did he do um, all three? Didn't he do X-Men Origins? No, well? not Origins. That was um, Gavin Hood. Oh, that's right. I apologize, Mr. Mangold. I, I truly apologize. But, uh, Adam, this was your pick, and uh, why don't you go ahead and go into uh, why you decided to pick Copland in particular. Well, A, it's the best Martin Scorsese movie that Martin Scorsese didn't make. Accurate. Uh, I mean, this cast alone is just insane. I remember when it was coming out, and there was a lot of buzz about Stallone's performance. You know, like, oh my god, Stallone's back. He put on all this weight. 
you know, he's act, he's acting and blah, blah, blah. So I checked it out and I, I was just blown away by the whole movie, especially the supporting cast. But of course, Stallone in this gives such a muted, just understated performance. And you just really feel bad for the guy the whole movie. I just, I just think it's a fantastic, fantastic movie. I mean, it's got every great character actor from the 80s to early 90s mafia movies you can think of is in this movie. And they're all great. Harvey Keitel is so great in this movie. Even even smaller people who were kind of somewhat on their downslope, like a Robert Patrick. This may be the last great Robert Patrick performance in anything, because he's so fucking good. I don't know, man. Striptease. That was before this, Adam. That was another oh. great performance right before, of uh, course, yeah. as we've covered previously on this show. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> but even, like, Michael Rappaport, he's really good in this. I mean, phenomenal casting of him as a douchebag who starts shit, because that's so unlike him. Yeah. At all. Uh, but what's his name from Shocker? What is it? Uh, Peter Berg? Yes. And I just don't like him. I just something about him. I don't, he's good in this, though. Maybe that's why I don't like him, because I really don't like him in this movie. He's a better director than necessarily as an actor. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> and even then, he's made some interesting choices later on in his directorial career. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, uh, I had seen this. It was probably not too long after I started getting into like the the Rockies and Rambos and um, it was in college was the first time I saw it because it was just like, well, this is one I've heard is phenomenal and it's one of his better performances. And I think I had seen the clip that I referenced earlier from Robert De Niro saying you blew it, which is magnificent. It's maybe one of the best bits of acting De Niro's done in his very long and storied career. Have we it's, covered more De Niro movies than anybody? I don't know. We did this, Heat. What was the other? Uh, Jackie Brown. Right. So we've done at least three De Niro movies. I don't know. I think there are other people who we probably have covered about as much, if not more. Um, but he's one of the, I guess, bigger ones. And interestingly, you mentioned Jackie Brown, because um, there's that point where he's exiting the police station at the very end of the movie. And you notice his mustache was a bit longer? Oh, you know what? I did know. I, I didn't notice it when I first saw it, but I, I know the trivia about it now. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he did that bit as a reshoot while he was still shooting Jackie Brown, so he couldn't shave his mustache. So he goes full on Lewis. Um, during the very climax of this movie, which was pretty fun to see. Uh, but anyway, in terms of the entire movie overall, um, I love this movie. I think this is a great example of... Mangold does this a lot in his other movies, of like, hey, we're going to make a Western, but not make it a Western. Like, 310 to Yuma is the only explicit Western I believe he's done. So many of his movies are clearly like, hey, we're making something else, but we're having a lot of Western influence. Like, Logan is that all over. They literally fucking quote Shane so much in that movie. Oh, yeah, Logan is exactly a Western. Yeah, yeah, and this, too, honestly, is because it, it fe feels very much in the vibe like it's a small, secluded town that feels almost like a Western podunk town, but it's full of, like, former cops in this case, and Stallone is the Patsy Sheriff, who, especially when you get into his backstory about the fact that he was, like, a local hero that saved a young girl at the sacrifice of one of his ears going deaf so he couldn't become a regular cop, and they gave him this as almost like a pity job. Like, hey, why don't you go ahead and uh, be our sheriff to these corrupt cops who are just gonna fucking abuse him this whole time. It's this great, sort of tragic character that Stallone plays beautifully, because as you mentioned, he gained 40 pounds for this, and there are so many moments where he just looks off wistfully. It's like all of the really tragic elements of Rocky, but he doesn't even have, like, the personality of a Rocky that made him the sort of local town legend of sorts. Right. This is like a more socially awkward Rocky in a way that feels very earnest. Almost as if you combined Rocky with Adrian as characters. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and he's he's just like a down on his luck schlub. You know, he's overweight. He's in love with somebody. Well, you get the idea that he's kind of in love with somebody, but she's married to a dickhead cop. You know, he's just got nothing going for him. And then he finally gets involved in this kind of you know, big deal case with eternal affairs and everything. And they just treat him like shit too. I mean, De Niro treats him like shit. He's just, he's literally just using him the entire time. And like you said, that, that your quote from the beginning, just you really, you're not even going to give him the time of day. I feel so bad for Sylvester Stallone in this movie. You could get it from Sloan's perspective where he's just like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. But also it really feeds on his own insecurities about like, I didn't act at the right time. There's like the only time he's ever acted at the right time was when he saved that woman who he ended up having this sort of crush on later. It really feeds on his insecurities in a way that it does make some sense in terms of, you know, all the 
paperwork and all this other shit, but the moment Stallone leaves and De just says, you know, if he does some shit, we might be able to open up this case again. <laughs> it's so great. But even De Niro does that with all the other cops, and it's so fucking great in this movie. Like, earlier on, when they're trying to do, like, the interrogation, he turns off the tape recorder, like, you shut the fuck up, and he's gotta say something or else he's getting fucking fired. <laughs> like, there's that, or when the guys are trying to do the investigation, and he's like, nope, case is closed, go to lunch! And he just, like, fucking tears apart everything. <laughs> It's so great. Yeah. He's fantastic in this movie. I really, really do enjoy Ray Liotta in this movie as well. Yes, it feels like with Ray Liotta in this movie, it's like, hey, how about if we made the last, like, the climax of Goodfellas, Henry Hill, the entire character? Because <laughs> he's constantly, like, on coke, extremely paranoid, looks like shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, he does. He looks like total shit in this movie. Is, is this the last really good Ray Liotta performance? Ah. Uh... Was this, but no, Narc was his last really great performance. Yeah, that's like early 2000s. Yeah, that was, I'd say, his last really, really, like, holy shit, Ray Liotta's got chops. After that, meh, meh. <laughs> Which sucks, because yeah. I really like Ray Liotta. Oh, no, and he works perfectly here, because he's another guy where you're, like, kind of invested in him, and then you find out he did a horrible crime. <laughs> like, one of the most despicable things I've ever fucking seen a character do, where Taz gets burned down, and his girlfriend ends up getting horribly scarred to death, and he walks in, and he's, like, crying about it, and then later on, you realize the ramifications of it is, oh, he did this for the insurance money, and he killed his fucking girlfriend. Yeah. That's, oh. Like, that whole scene also is so well shot, where Stallone's looking amongst the rubble, and trying to find something, and then really Oda appears, and he flashes the light on the silhouette. Great wonderful shot that like once again feeds into the almost like kind of westerny almost noiry elements of this movie so well where just there's so many secrets hiding behind this very simple sort of suburban looking place i love that too how it looks like especially like all the houses look sort of like art deco-y outdated like they were all built in the 60s and it feels like they're almost hiding it in a similar fashion to, like, 50s, 60s era, where, like, these guys grew up at that time, all these corrupt cops, and they're like, oh, hey, we can recreate this sort of artificial fantasy for ourselves by doing all of the horrible backward shit that we do. The art decoration just feeds into more of, like, the issues the movie's talking about in a subtle way. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, but there's also no point in this movie to where it didn't look like uh, you know, a small town outside of New Jersey or something like that, where these guys right. just run amok. It, it's totally, the scenery and the setting is totally believable for the story. It works perfect. Yes. I almost feel like, because at the time when this came out, you mentioned like sort of the buzz that was going on when it was like sort of doing certain festival runs, and then it kind of came out and did decently well at the box office on a $15 million budget, made $64 million, and got solid reviews, but kind of got forgotten after a certain point. I almost feel like it's and this might be me admittingly not remembering the times necessarily, but it almost feels like this movie's aged so well because of how many more corrupt cop stories we've gotten in the last, like, 25 years or so since this initially came out. Maybe at the time people dismissed, like, oh, this is somewhat, this is unrealistic, there's no way. It's like, really the most unrealistic thing about this movie is that everybody ends up getting caught at the end. Yeah, no, I point. agree. I think a lot of people expected a Martin Scorsese mafia-type film, especially with this cast. Because, I mean, let's face it, this cast, it would be perfect in, like, a, another Goodfellas or something like that. They have fucking Frank Vincent and also Tony Cicero has a picture in this oh, no. movie as, like, the, <laughs> the lead. Like, he, they're definitely hinting at some of that. And this is, like, right before even The Sopranos yep. that would kind of resurrect their careers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think people were really prepared for it to be a movie completely about corrupt police. And I, I don't know, because, I mean, yeah, it did okay. It did pretty well on its modest budget but like you said yeah this movie gets completely lost to time and i don't understand why it's it, to me it should be held up there with like i don't want to say the departed because the party came much later but movies of that ilk you know it's like where people talk about good crime movies or corrupt movies that this this should be right up in there with me there's a certain point where the movie does kind of like lose me like uh roger eber kind of said this in his review that was a, it was a two out of four star review where he said there's a lot of plot in too small of a movie and i kind of see where he's coming from in terms of there's a point after the you blew it scene that we talked about and before the amazing climax in this movie that we're going to go into detail about, um, where it's a lot of Stallone finding files and reading files and a lot more sort of exposition heavy. That's the point in the movie where I am kind of like, okay, it is slightly losing me. It's a, like amazing movie for most of it. And that's, I would say probably the point where it kind of pitter patters out of my attention 
a bit? No, I definitely agree. Um, and I think that part alone is what keeps this movie from getting like almost a perfect five for me. Cause there is that sort of bogged down moment. Yeah. It, it definitely feels the most sort of like, Hey, we got to explain everything so everybody can catch up on like, Oh, they had mob ties and all this other stuff. There's still fun stuff in there. Like, especially I completely forgot Janine Garofalo was in this movie, completely not playing the Janine Garofalo part on any level. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's his, uh, like, deputy. Right, the the new girl. She's even just, like, digging through files. Like, I got it. I got the one file. <laughs> I've had it right here. And she's very earnest and wants to kind of do something. And then later on, she's like, look, I, I don't want no part of this shit. <laughs> like, I want my old job back. This is fucking terrible. And also, Noah Emmerich, she was a very underrated character actor in a lot of things. You might recognize him from Little Children or Super 8. He's been everywhere. But he's so good here, too, as sort of, like... The well-meaning, but definitely more oafish cop, even than Stallone. He's just like, hey, I got a wife at home. I don't know if I want to do this. Yeah, he's a really, really good character actor. I think the first time I remember him was, like, the Truman Show. Yes, that's another one. Yeah, it, I mean, like I said, it's this great supporting cast, but Stallone really rocks the shit in this movie, man. I think it honestly comes from the fact that Stallone, prior to this, you mentioned like he was kind of in a downslope, where this is only a few years after a stop or my mom will shoot, or The Specialist, or Judge Dredd, as you oh, referenced. Oh, The Specialist. Oh, God. <laughs> like, a, a lot of, like, sort of forgettable kind of pattern that made him a joke. Sort of the, the early 90s were officially the period where he went from highest big action star of all time. It, that was starting to, like, seep out it in the late 80s with stuff like Over the Top, Oof. which is another phenomenally terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> He was sort of becoming a joke at this point, and this is, it feels like it's him, once again, trying to prove himself like he did in a lot of, like, 80s movies that, even if they weren't great, always being earnest. Like, this is definitely a chance for him, especially when you have this amazing stack cast that he's surrounded by, like Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta. Robert De Niro, Robert Patrick, so many big, heavy lifting acting names. And it feels like he really wants to prove himself. He really wants to be on level with what's going on here. They brought the best out of him in the best way possible. Yeah, I agree. It's funny, too, that you brought up uh, Roger Ebert earlier, because I remember when the first Rocky came out and uh, Roger Ebert said that uh, Stallone was the new Brando. I mean, it's true. It's a fantastic performance in the first Rocky. It's a very on the waterfront level performance. A hundred, a hundred percent. Yeah. And then it's so funny. And then he does this one against these, like you said, these Titans of acting, especially Titans of character acting. And uh, the way he gets up to, to their level is by doing less than them. Like, he's way more understated than anyone in this movie. Right, because in a, some of his lesser movies he did around, like, the 80s and 90s, he would definitely sort of overperform. I'd argue we're going to talk about one where he kind of overperforms. Watched Demolition Man the other night. Good lord. Um, D- D- Demolition Man has uh, some similar problems like that, where it feels definitely like he's trying to really go with, like, no, my machismo. And the sad thing is, he kind of talked about this um, in an interview he did uh, back in 2008 with Opie and Anthony. He said, I love the film, but it actually worked in the reverse. It was did pretty well critically, but the fact that it didn't do a lot at the box office fomented the opinion that I had my moment and I was going off, like, the Dodo Bird or the Tasmanian Tiger. That's depressing. Oh, it's extremely depressing. Bummer is that, like, he kind of worked into that where it's like, okay, I need to do more of this action stuff. It didn't do that much for him in the early 2000s, but then he went on and reprised Rocky Balboa and Rambo, and that kind of resurged his career again. And he's just been kind of doing a lot of, like, action-y schlock that's a lot more like what he would have done in the 80s, like the Expendable stuff, or Bullet to the Head, or some other things like that. And it feels so disappointing that, like, he still has so much potential. Even, like, later on, like, Creed would come out, and you could tell, like, oh my god, he still has this. He so still has this. And it just, he still wants to, like, perpetuate that image of himself. Like, no, I'm still, like, kind of the action guy. Even if I'm old, I'm still a bit more action than some of these younger tykes out there. And it's kind of just frustrating, because you know he can do better. Yeah, I'd argue that's what the entire Expendables franchise is. Just showing, hey, look, I could still do it. Get right alongside Jason Statham and Terry Crews. I can still do it, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah, Jet Li for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely disappointing. But also, I did want to briefly talk, we haven't talked a lot about Harvey Keitel in this movie, but it's a masterful performance from him, too, especially with how much he wants to play the, hey, I'm the sort of leader of this town. I'm the good guy. I'm the mayor, basically, of this small cop town. Um, but at the same time, how often underhanded he is and how he wants to like shove it off to the side, like the rooftop scene where Peter Berg dies. I love the detail of he opens the door, sees Peter Berg hanging there, then closes it and locks it and then tries to unlock it when everybody comes back over. That's such a masterfully sinister bit of this movie. Oh yeah. He's a weasel through and through. 
Yeah, Kaitel, you know, he's really kind of hit and miss with me, unfortunately. Which is not to say a lot, because, I mean, he's always at least consistent in the things he does. This might be my favorite performance of his. But then there's, like, Bad Lieutenant, which he's fantastic in. And even uh, From Dust Till Dawn, he gives a real strong performance. Uh, his bit in Pulp Fiction is fucking amazing. But this is probably my favorite Kaitel, for sure. I mean, he showed a lot of restraint by not showing his penis. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right, but uh, before we stop talking about Copland, we have to talk about the whole climax of this movie. From when Michael Rappaport gets captured to when Stallone says, I would argue his best one-liner in a movie of all time. This movie is, like, perfect, where he is going through with that shotgun, and it's great sound design where you can hear the same thing, where, like, after he's been completely deaf almost, uh, made completely deaf after Robert... Patrick shot him near the Goodyear, and then going through and just, like, doing that whole Western shootout thing, um, and Ray Liotta pops up, and he says that fucking line where he can't hear what Harvey Keitel's saying, so he says, I can't hear you. Goosebumps. I, I love that whole bit. Yeah, it's, it's such so a phenomenal good. climax of this movie. Oh, yeah, dude, you can barely hear the gunfire, like, the bullets are all pinging around him, he's bleeding from both ears, shooting at the hip, just taking these fuckers out. It's fantastic. You're absolutely right. It is exactly a Western scene. It's Rooster Cogburn walking down the middle of the fucking, you know, at high noon, just taking out everybody. This sort of old, you know, beat down sheriff who's still got one last little gunfight left in him. It's fantastic. Yeah, and even like after that, where you have him bringing Michael Rappaport in, and he wants to keep his composure, even though he is bleeding, he is completely disheveled, but he has this like final pride about like I finally did something great, I finally like did something that mattered. It's that it's that great example of like a character who is so downbeat and so ha- has so many issues in his life, but he only wants to accomplish at least one great thing, and he does that. And he hands it up to Robert De Niro and says, like, no, you're good. You got to like, get to a hospital, man. You got to get out of here. And then he has that great just final bit where he's with no marriage and they're like, he's just looking off into the distance. And then he says, like, somebody like deflated a tire over in Williamsburg. He's still in New Jersey, he's still in that same town. And he's still got his routine. But he's so satisfied that he did one great thing with his life. And that just, it, it's so emotionally palpable. I love the ending of this movie so much it says so much for stallone and so much for just how great this story is where it's so enclosed but you get so much umph out of this character at the end of it here here i agree this is a fantastic movie criminally underseen as well like a lot of the movies we've been discussing lately yeah i mean do we have any final thoughts i think that kind of summed everything up in a big bow pretty much i really we do. just did i really do <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no I, I mean i agree with everything said i think this is just a criminally underseen movie i think it's one of his best and one of the best uh late 90s that nobody really knows about or at least don't talk about anymore mm-hmm. and it's also it, it gave me so much credence for like uh james mangold he has a very interesting spotty career for me where i love some of his movies and there's other ones like i hate identity honestly i'm not a fan of I that movie. Not like identity either for oh, a couple of reasons but yeah that's so cheap yeah. Yeah, I have such a spotty record with him, but this, and especially Logan, kind of renewed this for me. It's just like, you know what, I'll watch anything you do. Even this Ford versus Ferrari movie, I honestly have little interest in the subject matter, but I will see that at some point. Yeah, I have zero interest in the subject matter, but I still want to see it. Yeah, and also that cast, though. I mean, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. But now, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, listen to this little ad break about an ESO show, that you could be listening to right now. Check out what's been going on with the Pop Culture Cosmo Show and the PCC Multiverse. The better that these Marvel films do, the higher the standards are going to be for not just other films in general, but other Marvel films also. I think it's really hard to end a show with this many fans in a satisfying way. That's the Pop Culture Cosmo Show. And the PCC Multiverse. Playing worldwide on radio seven days a week and right here on the ESO Network. All right, and let's get into our second feature, Adam. Let's uh, go ahead and uh, pay some cash to Tango with Tango and Cash. Meet Ray Tango. He likes money. He's a Kong. He's a go. But doesn't bother with cash. Meet Gabe Cash. 
he won't dance around trouble and doesn't mind stepping on toes. I hate you karate guys. Two of L.A.'s top rival cops are having a good time staying in rhythm. But they're going to have to work together, even if it kills them. Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. <laughs> Tango and Cash. Oh, buddy. I still remember the song from this movie. I even if, like last time I saw this movie was the first time I seen it in like ten to twelve years, and I yes. still just knew the theme song. This movie's just ingrained into my childhood. Well, it's a Harold Faltermeyer score, of course. Interestingly, another tie-in from Beverly Hills Cop. Um, that's so especially I love fucking Kurt Russell's uh, theme in this movie, where it sounds like a fucking. Banjo Kazooie theme or some bullshit. Sounds like a jug band and like you know a Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's pretty ridiculous. But we're talking about Tango and Cash, uh, which came out December twenty second, nineteen eighty nine, which makes it one of two of the final films released in the decade of the eighties. Along with, do you know the other one, Adam? I do not. It is Steven Spielberg's Always, everyone's favorite Spielberg film. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's, it's Christ. I mean, you said Steven Spielberg's always. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? But now I remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the long forgotten nostalgia, baby Steven Spielberg film always. Uh, but along with that, you had uh, Tango and Cash, which it's so appropriate that this is like one of the two last films released in the decade because um, it's a sweet farewell to those cocaine fueled nightmare days. Oh, yeah. This whole movie just reeks of excess. I mean, just pure yes. excess everywhere. I just. Oh, God. All right, you keep going, because I got some bullet points. We, we will get into it. So, this was my pick, and admittingly, uh, some of you might be decrying me, like, how dare you pick that as a bad movie? How dare you? Tango and Cash is phenomenal. Look, Tango and Cash is so much fun. I, I discovered this only a few years ago, because I heard so many, like, fun, especially, like, movie podcasts to talk about bad movies, talk about this. Like, one of my favorite podcasts is The Flophouse which is where a bunch of, like, former Daily Show writers come together and talk about a bad movie every two weeks. And I think they were the first one to expose me to this movie because they did an episode just drenching about how much they loved it. And so I was like, okay, I, I should definitely see this, I guess, because it seems ridiculous and I love a Kurt Russell. Even if I'm not as huge on the slow, I love Kurt Russell. And this movie is bizarre. It, it's, as you mentioned, it is the height of just cocaine-fueled 80s excess that is not good on a traditional level, but it's so just fascinating and exuberantly fun to watch because the two main leads, obviously, you have Stallone, and originally he was going to have Patrick Swayze as Cash, which in retrospect is not good casting. As much as I love Patrick Swayze, he would not fit the Cash role at all. He would fit Tango pretty well, but not Cash. Yeah, I by completely any stretch. agree. Yep. And he kind of left at the last second to do Roadhouse, which is another amazing movie from 1989 oh. <laughs> that we should talk about at some point. Yeah. <laughs> One of the most miraculously, this is kind of bad by a love in movies of all time, is Roadhouse. Um, and so they put in Kurt Russell, and they fit perfectly off each other, I think, because considering their careers, this was Stallone at the height of just, like, you can do whatever you want, Rocky, Rambo, I'm over-the-top crazy. It's like right before this is Rambo 3, <laughs> once again. He really cashed in this check and did such a weird thing, like making him the straight-laced cop, who at the same time um, is just as dangerous and awful as Cash, and also those glasses aren't aren't convincing us at all that you're like the smart guy. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all, dude. Like, uh, right from the opening chase scene followed by him shooting that tanker right near his fellow cops, and then just, like, having the cocaine pour out, and he's just like, uh, anyone want to get high? It's snowing! <laughs> which, <laughs> by the way, I just want to point out, if he would have put a fucking, I think it was a forty-four Magnum shell in his little thirty-eight Special snub nose, it would have blown the gun apart in his hand. Oh yeah, easily. But Stallone can handle that because he's so That's strong true. at him that he can handle that gun with that bullet. And I love that that is followed by uh, Kurt Russell's introduction as Cash, where he's like clearly like the man of the people, where all the children crowd around like Cash, Cash, you're here, you're back. And then he goes back up to his apartment. And he looks in the mirror like, man, I'm really sexy. And then an assassin pops out of the mirror. <laughs> Which I completely forgot about that whole bit. Um, but right from those two introductions, you can tell exactly what this movie is. Which is bizarre and crazy and amazingly fun. There's so many other things to talk about. But Adam, you have your bullet points. You were a big fan of this as a child. Go on. 
I would first agree with you. This is not a good movie. I loved it as a kid, but you watch it now, and it's it's just eighty schlock. But it's fun eighty schlock. Like I said, when I pick when you pick this, is this is on the level of like Roadhouse for me. Roadhouse is Roadhouse is so off the wall, batshit crazy. Like this movie, that's what makes it fun. I, I guess I have one major bullet point. Well, two. Mm-hmm. One is okay. The fucking laser sight on Kurt Russell's gun is out of control. <laughs> ridiculous. It's as big as the fucking gun. That's <laughs> so ineffective and would be so hard to wield. So that's to the point where later he loses it, and it's very noticeable that he lost it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And the other is fucking Jack Palance. Oh, do yes. I love Jack Palance in this movie? Tango so, and Cash. <laughs> cash and Tango. Tango and Cash. He's got this giant face built into a table that he can put mice in for no reason. Not just into a table, it's like the bar of his hideout. <laughs> like, people serve drinks, and there's like this fucking rat maze underneath. It's so great. It's It's just like, look at them. This one is Cash, this one's Tango. And look at them stuck in a maze. You built this entire maze and got these rats and did all this other shit just for this one metaphor. And, like, you're not going to use it anywhere else. (laughs) Such excessive spending. (laughs) (laughs) And that fucking truck, that SUV that they get from that little dude from Scrooged. Come on. Yes. Who is this guy? This this guy works for the. Wait, what? Why do they have like they're a... fucking like their Q or Lucius Fox? <laughs> they have a Q. He built him that thing. Get the fuck out of here with this. That movie is this movie is fucking out of control. Yes, uh, Michael J. Pollard. Yes, I love what's his name from Blade Runner with the Australian accent. Oh, it's oh so Brian bad. James. It's so <laughs> weird. Well, right. What's so interesting about that, too, is Brian James, who you might recognize from, as you mentioned, Blade Runner, Fifth Element. He was a great character actor in a lot of these kind of movies. Like, when he auditioned, he didn't use that accent, but he kind of just did it on the day, on the fly. And Sloan was like, I love this accent, even though it's a terrible, like, Cockney, Australian, whatever the hell it is accent. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And he's like, I want to put you in more scenes, which kept him on this notorious production which I didn't even know about until I was doing research for this. This movie had the most insane production process where, like, Stallone wanted to make this a lot more of, like, a serious kind of, like, gritty crime movie. Then you had the producers, including John Peters, who you might know from his various troubling stories, most famously probably the Wild Wild West story of him wanting a giant spider in several different movies. Um, that a certain person did, that we'll maybe talk about him near the end of the show. Um, but one of the most, like, insane, crazy, once again, 80s-fueled cocaine producers ever. Like, who got his start by being the hairstylist and then boyfriend of Barbara Streisand. And then f- kept failing upward from there. It's the American dream. Yes, he was the guy who wanted to make it like, no, and it should be more fun, it should be more of a sillier movie. And that caused so much strife where, like, Stallone fired the original director of photography, Barry Sonnenfeld, future director of movies we've covered on the show. He fired him and got a completely different um, cinematographer on. The director, Andre uh, uh was fired after a dispute over the ending, and they got some fucking second unit guy to completely reshoot the ending. And then right after that, they had concerns about, like, oh, this might be a bit too violent, might get an R rating. They hired the editor, Stuart Baird, to re-edit the entire movie a month and a half before it actually came out in December. Oh, God, Lord. Is this movie, what, this movie's PG-13? I, I don't, I doubt it would be PG-13. Say, there's no way. <laughs> God. And, oh, boy, just, oh, <laughs> oh man, I can't, uh, Robert Zadar. Yes. Oh, I love him so much. Who you might recognize from, like, Maniac Cop, right? As, like, he's the guy who has the very famous sort of disease that gave him this weird, bizarre chin that's so unlike anything else. Him just coming in during their, like, big prison riot, which I also love. This movie just turns into, like, a superhero story where they're, like, stuck in prison and they have to fight, like, a giant fucking villain, which, by the way, also in that scene, I love how Jack Palance is involved, but it's clearly, like, we got a double, and we put him in silhouette, and then we dubbed over Jack Palance because we couldn't get him for this reshoot that we're doing. 100%. 100%. Because there's no excuse why they wouldn't show his face. No, not at all. <laughs> There's no reason. Uh, and just their escape alone. 
get the fuck out of here. When they, when they fall off those wires that they, you know, zip line across with their belts, when they fall, their bodies would have been just destroyed. How Completely. hard they hit that ground. I mean, it's ridiculous. Oh, my God. I just... Uh, and then young Terry Hatcher is Ray Tango's sister. And just that, that whole just weird scenario. <laughs> Where it looks like they're having sex with her and Kurt Russell, but but do you believe like Stallone wants to bang her too? That's how it almost comes across, like, right? And, so well, because he doesn't know that he's the that she's the sister and all this other stuff, and it becomes this weird sitcom bit that's also abruptly stopped by like, oh, there's an assassin coming toward the door, and Stallone just like fucking jumps through it, <laughs> and the screen so, gets over that. Guy. Stallone does a lot of his Stallone yells in this movie too. Yes, I love. Yeah, <laughs> it's fucking great. It's great. And then the just the fucking the comedic Kurt Russell and drag for no reason. The bits that hold up the least about this movie, some of the homophobia stuff, and by the, some of I mean a lot of it. There is so much of like the machismo back and forth about like, oh, was that a proposal? Like they say that line I think three or four times. Like, is that a proposal? <laughs> Just, then there's the, the, like they're looking at each other's dicks in the shower or whatever right and, and just, Russell drops the soap and literally picks up just like soap and don't flatter yourself all this shit that's just like guys either, <laughs> either kiss or shut up just, yeah, just come on. get it over with good lord <laughs> just bang each other already but I guess you would definitely agree that I think a big thing that holds this together despite all of its odd bad trappings is the chemistry of Stallone and Kurt Russell right oh 100% they're excellent buddy cop like material they're great together that's why uh stallone i guess really pushed for him to be in the expendables movies and caress was like nah i'm good <laughs> like i don't blame him at all for not doing them but yeah no their their chemistry in this is excellent it's excellent excellent chemistry close to even like mel gibson danny glover level buddy cop chemistry yes with lesser material obviously yeah <laughs> But no, I, I agree because they had this interesting dynamic where Stallone, like I said, at this time, is still trying to overly prove himself, especially in this case. It's like, no, I'm the smart good guy cop. I'm totally that, guys. I'm not a big brute. I'm smart. Look at my glasses. And then contrasted with Kurt Russell, who around this time was still like kind of trying to dissuade that original Disney image that he had had and was doing it all the time just in movies that weren't doing that well. Like, yeah, Escape from New York that did well, and then you had all so many great movies that didn't do well with John Carpenter, like The Thing or Big Trouble in Little China. So almost that lack of, like, consistent success makes him... He's basically playing Jack Burton in this movie. Oh, completely. This is Big Trouble in L.A., honestly, when you think about it. Just in their names. Oh, they're stupid Ray Tango and Gabriel Cash. Just such 80s macho machismo names. What's the coolest names we could think of? Just so stupid, this movie. Oh, my God. Ugh. What's your favorite bit of banter between them? Uh, the, the whole scene with the grenade. Strapped to Brian James's mouth. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Like, bad cop or whatever. Like, you're out there, man. You're fucking crazy. I don't want this. Uh, you know what? You go ahead. I'm sorry, man. I tried to talk to him. <laughs> and Stallone, of course, was really going to do it. He really had lost his mind. Like, oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite bit might be during the climax, probably the big final moment of the movie where Jack Palance has Terry Hatcher captured, and they're like, all right, we want to bring him in alive. Let's aim for the legs. Three, two, one. And they both aim for the head, and they're both like, oh, my sights are off. Mine, too. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's great. By the way, they'd be going to prison after all Oh, <laughs> they would have been going to prison from, like, moment one of this movie. <laughs> yeah, they kind of just kill everyone. Oh my god, that's the thing, it's just like, there's so many points where, like, these two are, like, they're trying to contrast where, like, he's by the books, and Cash is the rebel. No, you're both insane. You're both, like, incredibly reckless, awful cops. And even saying things like, I love the whole um, thing where they're in the corrupt court, where all, like, the, the witnesses keep coming up and completely disparaging their names, and they're saying they're in pretty audible tones about, like, oh man, we're gonna kill him afterward, I'll bring the chainsaw, like, people can hear you! <laughs> Right, there's a microphone on that table, and there's people right behind you. <laughs> people hear them saying, oh, we didn't do it, but we are going to murder this witness after this. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. 
Also, a lot of great sort of 80s character actors in this we haven't mentioned also. Like, Michael Jeter, one of my favorites, Dearly Departed, as the guy who does, like, the implicates them and, like, this corrupt audio that he put out. I love that guy. Did he pass away? He did in, like, 2003. He died from AIDS complications, which is a bummer because he's... It's been a while, yeah, but he's so good. I love that yeah, guy. I, like Michael Cheater, he's great. Or James Hong briefly shows up as one of the various henchmen that just are around Jack Palance but don't do anything. They're just like, <laughs> that's a good one, Jack. That's most of the henchmen in this movie. I mean, totally, to be to be fair. Unless you're like Robert Zadar actually doing things and getting electrocuted. I love how he dies right. in this movie. For the one guy with the kicks, for some reason, who's really good at kicking things. Yes, the yes. yes. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> this movie. Look, <laughs> they they just go on a a monumental rampage. The likes that the world has never seen from just two police officers. It's insanity. And yet, at the end, like I said, everyone, oh my god, right, hang on, Gabriel Cash, they prove their innocence of a what? I mean, they high-five each other and clasp their hands around each other, and then the newspaper comes up like they're completely exonerated. <laughs> it's so yep, great. Or whatever. <laughs> Wait a minute. Back in business, Tango and Cash. <laughs> Not to count the death, all the death, and just millions of dollars probably in dis- property destruction. Maybe and this movie God. was ahead of its time about the police corruption we'd later see in Copland, Adam. Maybe these two would be the most notorious people in Copland who everyone would high-five. Do you think in Copland he's Ray Tango? Like, at the end of his career? Oh, you know, the headcanon. This is our BuzzFeed-connected theory of Celestial yeah. Slum movies. Yeah. It's a Tango and Cash verse. Hey, we just said that Cash is basically Jack Burton. You know, it's it's all connected. And then Jack Burton becomes Ego. <laughs> Don't let me plan it. Somehow. And Stallone is in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 as well. <laughs> oh my god! We just stumbled upon something. I'm going to write an article. <laughs> yep, write a listicle. <laughs> It'll go everywhere. <laughs> uh, uh, we're, we're getting a bit loopy here, much like this entire movie. Um, I guess I want to close with your final thoughts, Adam, as well as um, this movie didn't do... It's really the hugest uh, box office because, admitting, like, it went so over budget that um, it made $63 million on a $55 million budget, but it's become so culturally, like, relegated around, I think, because it was another one of those, like, HBO movies that just got, like, played a lot and people just sort of, like, watched it a lot when they were younger, like yourself. Um, what do you think is the sort of weird stain power? What's the key to that that makes Tango and Cash the sort of cult favorite it is right now? I, I think it's the same thing as, like, with Roadhouse. It's just... It's a perfect time castle of what the 80s were. And it's, I mean, like you said, it's the end of the 80s, the end of all that excess, the end of just over-the-top crazy action movie. I mean, we still got them, but none of them felt the way they did in the 80s. I mean, those are all just something on their own. They, they've never been properly duplicated. Sylvester Sloan and then young Kurt Russell, these two guys are still around, still kicking around. And it's just, it's just pure fun. This movie is fun. It's not good. It is just so entertaining, though. There's never a point in this movie where you feel like it's dragging. It's very first scene to the end. It's just always some crazy shit going on. I, I just think it just holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts because, you know, especially someone like me, I was like six when this came out. So I probably saw it when I was like seven or eight, to be honest, which is way too young. But we had HBO, so what are you going to do? Huh. And I just always remember fondly. I used to play this movie with my G.I. Joes. That's how much I loved this movie. It's just, it's a perfect time capsule of a movie. It, it's a weird thing where it definitely is playing with like, oh, it's drug lords and like and nudity and all this other stuff. But it plays so much, like I mentioned, like a superhero movie. It is so just like, it's almost a like kid's Saturday morning action show. But as like a weird, R-rated, very sleazy movie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and this is definitely one of those, like I said, when I was a kid and I saw it, I had the feeling like I shouldn't be watching this, but I'm going to, and I love it. It's like you mentioned, it does not light up whatsoever. It feels almost like any time where it might potentially light up, somebody took a little snort, and then they just had more energy to do whatever the fuck it was. The movie itself feels like it is snorting cocaine constantly at several different points. Even when it's kind of like mellow and low, it's like, hey, let's have a you know a small scene. Let's take a break. Let's have 
Kurt Russell seemingly having sex with <laughs> Terry Hatcher in this ridiculous massage scene. <laughs> so it's like even the calm moments feel cocaine rattled. That's what's so fascinating. And if the, the people use that excuse a lot of like, oh, this movie feels like it's on drugs. Were these people on drugs the whole time? And it's admittedly, if you've ever heard a creative talk about this, if you try and write anything when you're under that influence, you mostly produce garbage. And this is garbage, but incredibly fascinating garbage that clearly had, like, it's a combination of cocaine and also hubris. Just massive, giant, dick swing hubris, this whole fucking movie. From the cast, to the producers, to even the director, so many conflicting visions, and it just shows off with this movie that feels definitely of its time, but also like it could never be produced at any other time. Like, it's just like it's a time capsule. It's a time capsule, but, like, you pick it up out of the ground and it starts, like, shaking. Because it still has enough energy. <laughs> despite being it's irradiated. It's irradiated, exactly. 30 years later, it's um, this irradiated, weird mess that is strung together just by the chemistry of Stallone and Kurt Russell. But even that just goes weirdly exuberant other times. It, it feels like it's also a movie you really can't duplicate, I agree. Especially in the 90s. God knows so many bad, like, the weapon ripoffs still continued into the 90s. Um, but this is definitely one of those ones that holds up a certain badge of honor for being as fucking buck nuts as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with all of your sentiments tonight. This is crazy. You're on a roll. It's, it's, cr- I know. I'm, it's almost, I'm just fueled on some substance. I'm not going to say what, but that's the end of our discussion. Um, hold on a second. That's the end of our discussion on our two double features of slow movies. And uh, before we do our picket for next week, oh, you got to stick around for that. Uh, we have some feedback to read from all of you loyal listeners out there. Uh, because every Monday we put out at DEDB Pod, which is our Facebook and Twitter page, a little feeler about like, hey, what are your favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? And uh, we asked you all about Stallone, and you all delivered uh, with some comments, including first, James Rodriguez says, um, Copland is one of my favorites from Stallone for how understated and vulnerable he is. Pair that with his Demolition Man role, an entertaining presence that embodies the alpha male hero, which dominated 80s actioners, and you have a great showcase for his acting talents outside the obvious franchises of his. Um, on the flip side, uh, Expendables is a limp attempt to recapture that, the action highlights uh, in ways that elicit yawns, and there's whatever the hell he's doing in Spy Kids 3D. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That might be my you first believe. theatrical Stallone movie, Spy Kids 3D. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Oh, no. you, you, That was an early introduction to Thomas of like, hey, here's what disappointment is. <laughs> yeah, disappointment. <laughs> Even from yeah. the low expectations of Spy Kids 1 and 2. It's just all over that one. Uh. Uh, <laughs> um, Brian Kane says, I have a soft spot for Demolition Man, but his roles in Rocky Balboa and Creed are definitely among his best. Uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot is a TV pilot episode that went too far. I've heard that's accurate. I haven't seen that movie, but I've that's, that's very accurate. accurate. Yeah, you don't need to see that movie. <laughs> You're not missing out on anything. When that came out, Mm-hmm. And I was just a youngin. I remember watching going, this is terrible. So, I mean, that's, I've never revisited it. If I hated it when I was like 10 or 11 years old, there's no way I'm going to like it now. Um, Shane Steele says, uh, First Blood is amazing. Spy Kids 3D is amazing for all the wrong reasons. Um, and then uh, Will Nix says, Underrated best, Tango and Cash. Underrated worst, Oscar. Tango and Cash shows he can be funny, and Oscar shows uh, why he shouldn't try to be funny lol and uh dan click says uh best copland worst i want to say stop or my mom will shoot but i can't bring myself to do estelle getty like that so yeah i'm gonna go with what will said and say oscar i want to comment on this actually because i'd heard a lot of bad things about oscar i hadn't seen it before until i was like you know what our recording got delayed so i'm like i've been watching some other stallone movies i'm like i'll go ahead and check this out and honestly i will say stallone isn't good in it it's definitely an example of him trying way too hard in a comedy that really shows. But that movie has so many great supporting performances that I found it at least watchable. Kind of fun for yeah. what it is. Yeah, I remember not hating Oscar that much. Like, I don't remember it that well, but I remember when I saw it, I didn't hate it. Like, I remember thinking it was kind of fun. That is another crazy sad cast where you got, like, young Marissa Tomei before she did much of anything. Um, you got Chaz Palminteri... Peter Riegert, uh, William Atherton, uh, Kurt Woodsmith, Martin Farrow from Jurassic Park and Harry Shearer play the two guys that, like, make the suits and shit like that. There was a lot of fun stuff in that movie. Tim fucking Curry 
like steals the show constantly in that movie just by mugging. It's so great. Yeah. So uh, give Oscar another shot if you haven't. It's not that bad. Um, and then uh, Burial Grid at Burial underscore Grid on Twitter says um, he has some dark moments like Copland or Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, but his nadir has to be the specialist. Uh, so Stallone cast in a Skinamax level dud during the Basic Instinct inspired heyday of rock thrillers was a batshit insane decision at best. And then Fave, not very original, but the cop hating ahead of its time insanity of First Blood. That final monologue is still a vicious gut punch, and I miss that character being so layered and complex, uh, sculpted around such trauma. Yeah, I agree. I think his monologue at the end of First Blood is the best acting he's ever done. I mean, nothing's over, Adam. Poor bastard. You just felt every minute of it. Yes, um, though, uh, the subtle jabs at Copland, we do not appreciate Burial Grid. Thank you for listening, and thank you for following me, but we do not appreciate this Copland slander. At all. Yeah, you don't follow me, so you know what? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> yes, um, but I, I definitely, having rewatched First Blood, I definitely do agree. It's like, short of the first Rocky, and even Creed, I would say it's definitely just one of his best performances. Even the whole movie, like, I love in that movie how he is not directly responsible for, like, any deaths. Plenty of maimings, not one death. The one death in the movie is completely accidental. Yeah, 100%. But he does fuck those cops up. Caruso. Fuck you, David Caruso. I went fuck Brian Dennehy. Amazing performance oh, from Brian Dennehy, but such a dick. One of his best. One of his best. Oh, easily, yeah. And, I mean, it's such a, especially just a weird understated move that at the same time goes so bizarre at certain points. Like, the entire, like, thing where he takes over the small town. It could be in worse hands very over the top, but here it feels just, like, very grounded and understated, almost westerny in its own way. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can definitely consider a first blood like a what a neo-western or whatever absolutely here's a question how would you have felt if they originally shot an ending which you can see a bit of in the fourth rambo movie um where richard krenna was like going to shoot off to the side and make it look like oh hey we're going to make it seem like you got shot but you get to leave and then rambo grabs the gun and puts it in his direction and he dies do you think that would have been a better ending or not i don't know that it would be necessarily a better ending but at least it would have prevented us from the sequels, because I think the sequels completely detract from the original. So, maybe that's the ending we should have got. I mean, there's that, but at the same time, how much of a bummer would it have been after that entire tragic monologue, with the punctuation mark with him just, like, killing himself that way? Life's a bitch, man. What are you gonna do? <laughs> you know, it would have fit the character. 100%. Nothing's over! <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, thank you for all that feedback, and we also want to thank some other people here. We want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarda for the art for our show. And uh, find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, and also you can email us at doubleagedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Or you can uh, find my own individual account at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter and Instagram, where I post some stuff. I also do movie reviews at my blog, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. I have a review for the Jennifer Lopez movie Hustlers out there, which I would honestly say anybody, see that movie. It is so good. If you were kind of detracted by, like, oh, J-Lo's in it, her best performance bar none. (laughs) Adam, you know how I'll sell it to you? Imagine if Striptease and Ocean's 8 were combined and turned into a great movie. No, you're not really selling me on either. But a great movie! Yeah, well, I mean, I'll watch it when it comes out on, like, stream. Let's put it that way. Which I'm imagining it's going to be pretty soon. No, it did very well. It's doing very well, well for itself. Well, I, I choose to ignore all that. All these biases, Adam. I can't <laughs> believe it. You, of all people, never. Hey, Three from Hell got four stars from RogerEbert.com. <laughs> I was going to say, like, dude.com, because that man's been dead for several years. How dare yeah. you? Yeah, well, they, he resurrected just like they did for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I also want to say, uh, follow me at uh, truesuperherofans.com. It's a satire superhero site where I write stuff out there. At, around the time this is coming out, I would have put out um, an article uh, that says, uh, Kevin Feige announces slate for next 10 Baseball Caps Republic appearances. Wouldn't surprise me if you did. No, I wouldn't be surprised at all, no. Not necessarily. Um, and uh, also... We said this last week about, um, we mentioned we were going to be doing the Horror Returns together. Um, (laughs) Oh, boy. 
we hadn't recorded that episode before we did that. Um, and we kind of teased like, oh man, we were loopy at that point. Imagine how that episode's going to be. Um, is that the most insane thing we've ever been involved with? Yes. If you take how loopy and a little bit off the wall we got last time, which by the way, not that bad. Thanks to your editing. Uh, <laughs> but if you take anything in that, that you thought, nah, these guys are all over the place. Multiply it by like a thousand and then listen to the horror returns with way worse audio quality. <laughs> And no editing whatsoever. They did. They and only. No they only added in certain clips for like their audio yeah, bits. It's fucking insane. We had a lot of fun, but um, yeah, it's a, it was a fascinating train wreck of a, an episode where we covered uh, it chapter two and fourteen oh. I'll probably link it in the description. But be advised once again, uh, bonkers. Like maybe about as hubris fueled and crazy and conflicting as Tango and Cash is. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. And it's longer than Tango and Cash. Well, of course it is. Because, again, no editing. <laughs> not, none whatsoever. Um, but make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or any of the other places like Spotify or Stitcher or YouTube. Any places where you can find podcasts. And, you know, rate, review, or even just share the show to give us a bit more visibility out there. Have more people come to us. Come to us. Yeah, I mean, why not? Why not? Um, but now... Well, we're about to end the episode, and we gotta do our picking at them. So, um, we're going from Sylvester Stallone to another auteur of cinema that um, we both have so much affection for, or at least have a lot of history with, let's definitely say. Um, we are doing in honor of Jay and Silent Bob Get Rebooted is coming out soon, um, in, I found it like a Fandango-style release in October. Because, yeah. <laughs> shocker that he's not going out with like a wide release on that. We are doing... An episode about Kevin Smith, which will be interesting because there's so much history with that man and me. Honestly, I will say, this podcast probably wouldn't exist if it was not for that man. Really? I'll, I'll go into a lot more detail next week, but I would not be talking on a microphone here without his influence. So, um, you know, send your hate letter to him wherever you can. Yeah. Uh yeah, and uh, so we're doing Kevin Smith. But I have the two good choices, and you have the two bad choices. And I know, Adam, that fits you perfectly, because uh, isn't Kevin Smith on that list of yours? He is firmly on the list. Oh, fuck. I'm <laughs> this is... I'm, I'm dreading this one. <laughs> well, I strong-armed you into doing this, because we needed this therapy, Adam. We need yeah. to confront this head-on, to some degree. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, you can admit that he's maybe done a couple good movies, can't you? Yeah, sure, sure. There's a couple gems. Uh, more bad than good, but there is a couple gems. <laughs> so, uh, for my two good choices, Adam, and then between one and ten. Oh, number five, right down the middle. All right. At number six, I had, um, interestingly, the movie that introduced me to Kevin Smith, and I think uh, one of the ones that still holds up pretty well from his filmography, I have 1999's Dogma. Yeah, right. that's one of the gems. And, uh... Uh, your other? Well, at number two, I had a movie that I think got really decried at the time, but I think in retrospect in the ten years since, it's uh, held up a bit better considering some of his other work. I had uh, Zack and Mary make a porno. I also think that's one of the gems, so, okay. Yeah. I, I guess I kind of won out on either of those. Yes, All but right. now, uh, time for me to lose out. I'm very curious oh, about this. Oh, yeah. You're gonna be, it's, it's bad, dude. Hmm. So I'm going to go with number... Hmm, I'm kind of conflicted between three and seven, considering Kevin Smith. Uh... <laughs> it's funny. Both of those are assigned the numbers. Ooh, okay. Um, you know, I'll go um, in a row, seven. Okay, man. Okay. All right. Uh, I, I, I have thrown yoga hosers at you. Oh, I knew this day would come. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... If we're going to go with bad, we could go with the worst possible. Yeah, that's kind of what I kind of where I was going with that. And then for number 3, I went for the next possible worst choice, which was Tusk. I've I've seen Tusk more times just because of asshole friends. Um so I'm at least glad I'm not seeing it again even though it's the better movie cuz RIP Michael Parks at least makes it right. Not the worst cuz he's very good in a really bad movie. Yeah, well, there was a couple other options that I had, but I figured they might not be as entertaining to discuss. No, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so sorry. So yoga hosers and dogma. <laughs> dogma. Um, yeah. 
I guess that, that fits. It's a bit more. They're more thematically tied, I would say, than others. Post-apocalyptic type stories. So, yeah, a bit of sort of like urban fantasy kind of things that he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, yeah. so we'll go ahead and uh, mosey on out of here before uh, we stay too long on this, because uh, you know, Adam, we got to go ahead and stop that drug bust, and we're gonna just break all the laws possible while doing. Are you with me, Cash? Yeah. Oh, I'm Cash. Never mind. So well, I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah, you know. Yeah. We switched roles here. That's the big twist of our remake of Tango yep. and Cash. They switch parts. Yep. <laughs> it was too fat guys doing impersonations. Oh, oh, it'll be so perfect. It's like it's Frank Caliendo's Tango <laughs> and Cash remake, basically. Uh, All right. Good night, everybody. <laughs> been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.